Do you know why some people here this morning will never get saved? Because they don't really believe they need to be ransomed. They believe they are okay with a holy God. But I want to tell you, unless you are ransomed, you'll never make it to heaven. And the Bible says that he gave himself as a ransom. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. As we continue our study of 1 Timothy today, we come to verse 4 of chapter 2, where following Paul's exhortation to pray for kings and for those in authority, he proceeds to explain that this is the will of God and that God wants all men to come to the knowledge of truth because there is only one God. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy now as he explains the logic of Paul's argument. Paul is saying the reason God desires all men to be saved is because there's only one God. Now follow his logic. If there were many gods, then it would be left up to man to choose the God of their preference, and there would be no need for you and I to pray for them. But we are to make prayer for all men because there is just one God. Now, both Judaism and Christianity has always affirmed that there is one God. We as Christians affirm something that's not unique to the New Testament. It's in kernel form in the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triunity of God. We don't believe in three gods, but one God manifests in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But we have always acknowledged with Judaism that there is one God to whom we are to give ourselves to fully. And that is why the greatest of all the commandments in the Word of God is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, because God doesn't want any competition, because there is no competition. Now, it's interesting to me as I read through the Scriptures that repeatedly when God affirms His oneness, and it's not unique to the... Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. James also likewise affirms, even the demons believe orthodox truth, namely that God is one. They shudder, but they believe what's right. God is one. It's an affirmation found in both Testaments. And repeatedly, when God affirms that truth, it's accompanied by the fact that not only is God one, but he is a jealous God. For instance, in the second commandment in the Decalogue, Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I would repeatedly read statements like that as a new Christian, and I would scratch my head and sometimes be bothered by them. Because on the one hand... I would read that love is not jealous. On the other hand, I would read that God is a jealous God, God who is love. On the one hand, I would read that God is jealous. On the other hand, I would read in Galatians 5 that jealousy is a work of the flesh. But much like anger, there is both a righteous and an unrighteous expression of jealousy. By definition, jealousy is the uh, resentment of a rival. That's what it is. It's the resentment of a rival. And whether your jealousy is legitimate or not depends whether or not your rival is legitimate or not. 
For example, you have no right to be jealous over another person in the realm of academics because they outshine you. Because you don't have a monopoly on the realm of academics. You have no right to be jealous over a person in the realm of athletics who outperforms you. Because you don't have a monopoly in that field. There is such a thing as legitimate competition. Now, yesterday I married two people sitting right there. They stood right here. They were divorced to each other some years ago, but in the grace of God they found Christ and they got married back to each other yesterday. And I asked Bobby, Bobby, will you forsake all others? Will you cleave unto her and to her only as long as life shall live? And he said, I will. What was he saying? He was affirming that there is an exclusiveness in the marriage covenant. And if a third party enters into your marriage, you as a man, if someone tries to woo away the affections of your bride, you have every reason to be jealous and you're right for it. So very often when God's jealousy is spoken of in Scripture, it's spoken in terms of covenant, even a marriage covenant. But my point is this. Since there is one God, he has the exclusive right to our worship, and he has the right to be jealous when our affections go somewhere else. Elijah the prophet acknowledged this in 1 Kings 19 when he said, For I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He was jealous because the children of Israel had forsaken their covenant with God. They had torn down God's altars, and they were worshiping the false gods of Baal. Elijah longed for the people of God to give themselves to the one true God. Likewise, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, when I shared the gospel with you, you got saved and I betrothed you to Jesus Christ. And now I fear that there are some rivals in your life. The world is ended in that you're giving your devotion to some other things and you are deserting the one to whom you are betrothed. You are abandoning the simplicity of one whole heart to Jesus Christ. Now, I emphasize this, among other reasons, because one of the great incentives that is given in the Bible for soul winning is that God is one and he deserves no rivals because he is a jealous God. Jealousy is to be for the glory of God, for the name of God, and is the principal and foundational motivation in the word of God for evangelism. And yet very rarely, if I've ever been to a missions conference or heard people speak on evangelism, is it even mentioned. But Paul mentions it in his opening verses of Romans. He said that he preached the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Or again, the Apostle John writes in his third letter when he speaks of missionaries who went out for the sake of the name. They went out for Christ's name and his glory, that the glory deserving of his name might be above every other name. That's what it means to be jealous for God. And since there is one God, we are to give him exclusive allegiance. And since there is one God and he desires all men to be saved, then prayer to the one true God is in order for such people. So he continues, for there is one God 
and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Since there is only one God, there is need for only one mediator, and that one mediator is Jesus Christ. No other person can qualify. And since there is only one mediator, our responsibility and mission as a church is to let people know of that one mediator. Now, some imply by their practice that there's more than one mediator. So some pray through angels, or at least they think they are, or through saints, some even through the Virgin Mary. In fact, there are some Roman Catholic theologians who have dared in recent days to call Mary a co-redemptrix. She is not a co-redeemer. She is not a co-mediator. She did not share the work of redemption, neither does she share the work of mediation with the Lord Jesus Christ. But having any more than a single mediator is exegetically impossible in this verse in light of the phrase that precedes it. For there is one God. To say that Christ is one among many mediators is to say that God is one among many gods, which I won't even bother to address. But lest we be too smug as evangelicals, who affirm that there's only one mediator between God and man, I wonder if in our practice we live something else. You know, sometimes someone will come into my office and I will ask them, someone who's been maybe caught up in a deep sin or incredibly discouraged by bad, sinful choices they've made, and I'll ask them, would you please pray? And more than once, the response has come, oh, pastor, I don't feel worthy to pray. And sometimes I will say, well, let me ask you this. Would you feel more worthy to pray if your life has been lived well? You know, I mean, if you've been sharing your faith this week and having your quiet time and walking in peace with God and with men, would you feel more worthy to pray? Oh, of course I would. Then you're not praying in Christ's name. You're praying in your name and in your righteousness. When we add in Jesus' name to the end of our prayer, it's not just some ecclesiastical formula, not some little prayer slogan that we add. We are acknowledging that we are able to come to a holy Father because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done as our mediator. Now, of course, most people would agree that there is only one God. Most people in the world today are monotheistic and not polytheistic. And certainly Christianity does not have a monopoly on this truth. We've already noted the monotheism of the Old Testament. And Muslims are tenaciously monotheistic, sometimes even wanting to kill those who are Trinitarian because they think that we don't affirm the unity of God. So the unity of God is not always in dispute. But what many would take objection to in regards to the Christian faith is they would say, well, this God who desires all men to be saved, why does he desire that they all be saved in the same way? Why does Paul say they have to come to a knowledge of the truth? Why can't there be many in different ways by which man could be saved by this one God? Why shouldn't he save some through Islam and others through Buddhism and others through Hinduism? Why do they all have to be saved in the same way? 
Well, Paul gives us the answer in verses 5 and 6. He gives us two clear reasons why we as Christians can say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, the only mediator between holy God and sinful man. First, he reminds us of who Jesus is, and then he reminds us of what Jesus has done. In describing who Jesus is, he says in verse 5, For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The one in whose name we pray, this one who mediates on our behalf is described here as the man, Christ Jesus. Now it's assumed already that Jesus is God. That's not in dispute. In fact, when we come to the third pastoral epistle to Titus, we're going to read one of the most clearest affirmations in all the New Testament on the deity of our Lord and Savior. And in this letter, in the opening verses, Paul has already affirmed the deity of Christ by associating him as the single source of grace, mercy, and peace with God the Father. So the divinity of Christ is not in question here. But the emphasis is on his humanity. Our mediator, equally God, became man. And what is asserted here is his humanity. It's not simply that, he, that it's saying that he became a man in deference to a woman. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about why God took on masculine characteristics before we're done with this epistle. But that's not the emphasis of this verse. He uses the racial word, anthropos, to describe all of humanity, men and women alike. The emphasis is here is that God added to his divine nature sinless, perfect humanity. That God and man were formed in one person. And why would he emphasize that here? Because without Christ becoming a man, he could never be our mediator. You see, the function of a mediator is to represent both sides equally. And in this case, God and man. So for the mediator to represent both God and man, the mediator would have to be the God-man. And of course, this is the problem that Job longed and wrestled for. In Job 9, he said, For he is not a man as, that is God as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Now, if you were reading the Greek text, the word men and man, anthropon and anthropos, are next to each other. For there is one mediator between God and men, man, Christ Jesus. The word the is indicated in the New American Standard. It's not there, is it? It's italicized. That means it's not a part of the original Greek manuscripts. It's just added there to smooth it out as we read it in English. But God, for emphasis sake, said there's one mediator between God and man, Thaukai, Anthropon, Anthropos, Christos, Hiesus, God and man, man, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is both God and man, and so he can be our mediator. He can be our umpire between God and man. And the Gospels teach that. The epistles affirm it. And he himself gave evidence of his unique God-man stature. But in addition to who he is, I want you to see why Paul argues for one mediator because of what he has done. Look at verse 6. He is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. 
Now, it is remarkable that Paul jumps immediately from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ. But that shouldn't surprise us. And unfortunately, it's something that most people in our nation will miss next month, won't they? They will not con connect the birth of Christ, his incarnation, with his death, with his atonement. And yet Scripture repeatedly links them many times in the same verse. Even the Apostles' Creed that we read, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. His death and his birth are linked together. And Paul uses another word, the word ransom, which echoes the truth that Christ spoke of during his earthly ministry, a very important word that every Christian ought to know in relation to your salvation. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now let's analyze this important phrase about the death of Christ here in verse 6. The word ransom is a Greek word that was used in the first century to describe someone who paid a price for a slave or someone else who is held captive or in bondage. And so for God to use this specific Greek word to describe what God did for man gives us a picture of the way God sees man. He sees man in the awful plight that he is in, that he is enslaved and that he is prisoned in his own sin and guilt and he needs to be ransomed, he needs to be liberated. Do you know why some people here this morning will never get saved? Because they don't really believe they need to be ransomed. They believe they are okay with a holy God. But I want to tell you, unless you are ransomed, You'll never make it to heaven. And the Bible says that he gave himself as a ransom. The costly price of our purchase, of our redemption, was not outside of God, but it was with the old, his own lifeblood. It was of necessity that God become a man because man must die for sin. The wages of sin is death. The life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But I couldn't shed my blood for you. It would be sinless blood alone, blood that did not deserve the penalty of death that could take your penalty. So God bypassed by a supernatural virgin conception the sin nature transmitted by our parents and the God-man became a ransom himself with his own blood. He gave himself instead of or on behalf of. Both prepositions, by the way, are found in the Greek New Testament. Huper is a pre preposition on behalf of. He gave himself as a ransom. Huper, on behalf of all. And the word anti is attached to the word ransom, and it means instead of. Christ Jesus gave himself on behalf of us. And instead of us, he became our substitute. He died for us in our place. It was a substitutionary death in order to set us free. And so putting together three very important nouns here in verses 5 and 6, and I have them underlined in my Bible, they summarize the life and work of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, he is called a mediator. He is called a man. He is called a ransom. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now the word man points to his birth the birth, his birth of a human mother. 
The word here, ransom, points to his death by in our place becoming our substitute. And the word mediator points to his resurrection and ascension of which he is able as the living God to intercede on our behalf because of what he has done. And these three words belong together. They cannot be separated. Jesus Christ can be our mediator only because he became a man. And he did that at his birth only because that he might be a ransom for us through his death. And because at his birth he became a man, and at his death he paid the ransom price, he can be our mediator. Birth and death, inseparably linked throughout the word of God. In theological terms, what we call the incarnation and the atonement. No one else could have done it but the God-man himself. And Paul says that God gave him at the proper time. In the fullness of time, according to all of the prophecy that God had outlined in Holy Scripture, at just the right time, he carried it out. And why did he do it? Well, among other reasons, Paul is so gripped with what Christ did that he says in verse 7, And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Christ died for all men. God is not willing that any man perish, but that all men be saved. But how does this good news get out to a lost world? Well, God calls and ordains men to preach to lost sinners. Now, before we're done with this epistle, we're going to see that Paul is not unique in his calling, that God has called every born-again, blood-bought child of God to be a preacher of the gospel. Maybe you differently than me, but nonetheless, we are all called. And Paul says, I'm a preacher, I'm a messenger, I'm a herald of the king, I'm an apostle, I am sent by God, and I am a teacher, and not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. I'm telling the truth. This message, he says, is for all people, for all nations, the same God who ordained the end, that is, that all men be saved, also provided the means to that end. And it's good news. Now that's the thrust of these first seven verses. God's desire concerns all men because he desires all men to be saved. Christ's death concerns all men because he gave himself as a ransom price for all men. And therefore the church's duty should concern all men in prayer as we seek in prayer and proclamation to do that which God has called us to. Now, as I've read and reread these verses over and over and over again this week, three applications came to the forefront of my mind. First, I am reminded that as a church, we, have, we are to have a universal scope in our prayer lives. As a church, our prayer lives are to be universal in scope. Universal in scope. Remember, the basis for prayer, according to this text, is the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it's one of the most important activities a Christian can ever engage in. Not to pray for the whole world, it's to slight the cross. It's to ignore God's passion, God's desire, God's will that all men be saved. Second, I am reminded not only should our prayer be universal in scope, but our preaching should be universal in scope. Our goal is to reach the whole world. Look, if there weren't 
any other Christians on the face of the earth but the people in this fellowship, we would be no less obligated to reach the whole world. We take that verse, go therefore and make disciples, and we dump it on the missionary. Oh, yeah, that's what we pay him to do. God bless you. Go out and win those heathen. There was just a small group of men and women in that upper room who came down, filled the Spirit, and they took the Great Commission as their own, and they said, we're going to do everything in our power to reach the whole world, and because of their faithfulness, you and I are here today as believers. Look, we have a responsibility, and it doesn't concern just Beaufort County, though it concerns all of Beaufort County. It doesn't concern just South Carolina, though it concerns all of South Carolina. It concerns all of America. It concerns the whole world. God has called us to go and to preach the gospel to every creature under creation. And when we make our prayer life less than that, and our preaching life less than that, then we have slighted the meaning of the cross. Third, I am reminded that while our prayer and preaching must be universal in scope, our response to Jesus Christ must be a personal act. While Jesus Christ died on behalf of all, while he died with you in his mind, while his blood is sufficient to save everyone who has ever lived in all of human space, not everyone will be saved. His death is sufficient to save anyone. But it only becomes efficient for you personally. When you come in humility and brokenness as a sinner, calling upon his name, the one who himself with his own blood ransomed you that you could be delivered from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of the living God. And God in his providence has brought some of us here today that we might respond to his grace. Our Father, help us as the people of God to unashamedly take the gospel of good news of the one who paid the ransom that an unsaved, unbelieving world might be delivered from the prison of sin and guilt and be rescued into the kingdom of God, made new creatures, changed from the inside out. Help us to do that because you said whoever will call upon his name will be saved, but they cannot call unless we tell them. Now, Father, I've told them this morning, and I've told some listening to my voice that have never responded. I've told them of your death and your burial and your resurrection as their only way of escape from their prison of sin. Help them, Father, in your grace to call upon his name. Would you do that this morning in the quietness of your heart? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, save me? Would you say that, Lord Jesus, save me? Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. He did what he did, and because he did what he did, he can promise you what he promises. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And if you will come to him today in faith, he will redeem you. He will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. And he will put the spirit of the living God in your bosom that God would become real and you would become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Father, help someone to do that today. And help us as a church never to be ashamed, faithful, the high calling you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name and for the sake of his name. 
Amen. To listen again to today's study, The Christian's Worship and Mission, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM3. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at a highly debated topic in the church, the role of men and women. Join us then as we search the scriptures.